0: So John, welcome, good evening. It's good to have you with us. Thank you, pleasure to be with you.
1: Good. Um, so John, let's just begin. Missional Imagination was your title. Um, what was your inspiration for it?
0: Well, I don't know about inspiration. It's just that I, I've uh, gradually began to realise that one of the things that moves us forward and particularly moves us into a different space from that in which we've been is thinking creatively and imaginatively. And for a lot of people, the imagination is a kind of bogus gift of the holy spirit and i, I do quite a lot of workshops in this and ask people why is it that we encourage imagination among children we delight to see children using their imagination but if you talk about a, a, a you know a man or a woman is having a vivid imagination it's almost a negative thing right. and people will say well your imagination can take you you know down a dark tunnel okay it can but there's no, you know, there's no work of art, there's no work of music, there's no uh, piece of literature which has been written without somebody having a, a, a imagination. And my conviction is that that imagination is at the heart of God. That when God creates the world, he creates a diverse universe. You know, he doesn't just make grass, so he makes grass and he makes flowers and he makes trees. He doesn't just make dogs, he makes dogs and cats and zebras and so on and it's if, if, if God dreams into being that which was not there and 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 human beings made in God's image are expected as part of their stewardship of the earth and their guardianship of the church to be creative and to be imaginative so that's you know why I feel it should it's not talked about in any colleges it's something that we can avoid in the church but I think it's at the heart of faith and I've, I've seen places where when it's been unlocked, great things have happened.
1: And I will we'll pick up on that over the, the next hour, of course. Like I, I was thinking about kind of uh, imagination, perhaps our lack of imagination you've seen there at times, and I was reminded of that quote that I think is um, often credited to Einstein, but maybe somebody else, it said insanity, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different outcomes. Um, and I
0: wonder, do you think Einstein was describing the church? Uh, <laughs> you well, know, but well, in some places, yes, and and there is, and, and and you know, I I think I should say first of all, I'm not a congregational minister, so I have a very different kind of job, and always have, and there, and, I, and also, although I, uh, I, you know, love the URC and have worked in URC. I'm not making any judgment on it mm. but you know within all traditions just now there there is sometimes a kind of retrograde uh, tendency as if if we only went back to what we used to do well then people will come or or will it'll be more enjoyable and you know that happens in the catholic church where there are a whole lot of young priests coming from America to work in in British parishes, and they're they're putting on berettas, like a black hat kind of thing, and trying to get back to saying the Mass in Latin. And I don't think we're allowed to do that. You know, there's a moment in the history of Israel when having gone across the Red Sea and got the Ten Commandments, then they come eventually to the Doors of the Promised Land. And it's a very interesting passage, and it's very seldom read, but at at the Doors of the Promised Land, Moses' is offer going forward, and then people say, no, no, we don't want to. We want to go back to Egypt. Now, I mean, this short-term memory has been lost. I mean, these people are are suffering from kind of corporate dementia. Mm -hmm. They cannot forget what it was like to live under slavery. And, And the judgment of God is quite clear. God does not back the Back to Egypt Brigade. There are three choices God has. And he tells Moses, I could let them go forward, but I'm not willing to do that. I could send them back to Egypt, but I'm no willing to do that. And so they have to go into the wilderness for 40 years until all the complainers die off. Now that is the scripture. People didn't want to go forward and therefore God wouldn't let them go back and they they enter into a stale stale zone in which nothing, nothing happens until a new generation comes along. So I don't I don't, you know, doing the same thing over and over again will will do nothing else but but tire us out and it'll be fruitless. And I think while we can retain insight and some materials and good practice from the past, we always have to be thinking in terms of how in this culture with these people and this language, and and given all that besets us and surprises us about the new reality of living in a you know, a post-COVID society. How do we do things differently? And I wonder,
1: do you think that it's fear that stops us from, from moving forward? Is it familiarity of the past where we feel comfortable? Is it a, a lack of desire of wanting to change? What do you think it is that keeps us going back to what we've always done and prevents us from kind of entering the promised land with with all its potential?
0: Well, I think it, it's. I mean, it's all these things. I don't. I don't think that there's one thing that, that, that stalls people. I mean, then, then the pheno- change is an interesting phenomenon because some people will change if you give them more information. I mean, I can think of a church in Scotland where the minister wanted to out the four back pews to make room for people to have coffee afterwards, mm-hmm. a country church, there was no village hall. And it seemed a great idea logically. And then a farmer, it took him aside and said, Listen, this is over my dead body, because my ancestors in the 1740s built this church along with other people. And my grandmother always sat in the second back pew, as did people before them. So the very wise minister thought, OK, we'll find the truth. He goes back to the plans of the church and discovers that it was an entirely different shape when it was built, and that this, the second and third back pew have only been in there since 1920. So he says to the farmer who's a logical thinker let me show you the plan of the church and there's the names of your ancestors who built it but it was different from now so the back pew only goes back to your granny it doesn't go back you know centuries mm. and the farmer said well as if, if this is the truth let's take out the back pews now i mean that, that's a that's a great thing and I, and I sometimes think we don't give enough people up you know the, the information that helps them to move some people don't move because there's an emotional bondage to the past if i take another example uh, in a church in glasgow i'll not name it but they had lots of kids coming and somebody said to the the minister said to the his elders we've got all these kids and are you okay about me having them up on the kind of chancel the front bit of the church So oh, it's great mister great mister so-and-so great to have all the kids and you don't mind me kind of interacting with them. No, 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 But there's not much room up there. No, no, that's right. And sometimes they get mixed up with the choir. The old, all ladies legs, and they don't like that. No, that's right. So we need some more room for the kids. That's right. So we'll take out the two front pews. No, you'll not. Now, logically, it was very good. And then he discovered that the men, and it was the men who were resisting taking out two front pews, used to be in the boys' brigade. And that's where they sat in Boys Brigade parades and some of them brought in the colors, you know, the Union Jack or whatever Mm -hmm. it was. And, and they, they believed the best days of their life in the church was when they were in the Boys Brigade. And to take away this totem, which was the pews, was, 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 was a a loss to them. They were, they were feeling almost a bereavement. So sometimes we have to deal with emotional, you know, baggage that people have. And the other thing is that some people won't move forward unless they've got an image of possibility so i tell tell one story Uh, years ago when i began the work i do now my colleague and i were doing an evening in glasgow we're doing a course on worship and we did this evening uh, at the end of every evening we'd always have a week in a liturgy a closing prayer and one night um we decided that we would put in the middle of a long table we've got 60 people along this two sides of this long table. We'd put a candle at one end, which is burning a, a a Bible in the middle and a cross at the end. And during the prayer or the worship, we'd ask people that if they wanted, and remember all these people were Protestants who believed that John Knox invented the electric light, <laughs> but that if people wanted to remember somebody who they'd like, to, uh, they'd like to have a word from the Lord, or they'd like to see more of the light of God, or they want to come closer to jesus that if somebody was in their mind that they really wanted to pray for that rather than say words they could take a wee candle and we had got them from the catholic church and they could go to the big candle and light it and put it near the big candle or the bible in the middle or the cross the end so graham my colleague he's introducing this and i begin to play in the piano but my backs to everyone and people are singing a wee song kindle a flame to light in the dark something like that and i realized that some people were moving and then it became quiet. So I stopped playing and looked round. And and there's, a, there's, there's about 50 candles which go from the big lit candle all over the Bible and up to the cross. As if somebody had made this an artistic installation. They weren't all over the place. They were in a straight line. Well, we said nothing. Next day, I'm in the Church of Scotland bookshop and this deacon in the church comes up and says, oh, I heard you had a great night last night. I said, yes, it was actually. She's, and, and this woman said, she says, there's a, a woman from our congregation who is there, and she just was mesmerized by that thing about lighting candles, because her son is in a murder charge in Berlini prison. And she's not a woman who would pray out loud. And she's not a woman who should light a candle because she's the matron in the local Lor- Orange Lodge. But last night, somehow, the possibility of doing something entirely different allowed this woman to feel that she was making a connection with god through prayer in a different way so sometimes we need you know the experiment or 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 just an image of possibility so what do you think
1: we looked at a few things here what do you think needs to come first is it dealing with
0: people's emotion, or do we need to give people the vision first well i would i would go for the vision yeah, I'd go for the bit. I'd kind context things. You know, for example, when in Scotland we were, um, a, a <laughs> I'm trying to pick one of several stories, uh, when we were, we, we, we had this reality of of, of choirs um, being sometimes small in number. And I've been in churches all over Britain, Anglican churches, where there's, you know, there's there's kind of two sopranos and one alto and a man who's not sure what he is. And they've been there since god was young and really it should just sit down and we had this all over the country you know choirs thinking we must be there we must be there well in one report of our, uh, our worship committee it was stated that the choirs aren't a presbyterian thing that they only come in around about 1890 that they were there initially to help the congregation to sing to learn new hymns and that they're all and that, and that there's a choir can can can, can just um disband if 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 uh, if if they feel it's time now that's not a big statement but for people who needed the information that this is not a tradition or for you know boys who are in love with the organ which i am and we think only the organ and only organ you say well actually our, our tradition and a lot of people like to see themselves as traditional Reformed christians traditional well our tradition is we never had organs until the end of the 19th century they were catholic or they were anglican and we sang unaccompanied so you get that information and then people can move forward and i think i think that you have to do a wee bit of contexting and then look at the possibilities if we do something differently and so I,
1: guess, un- I guess our context now a little bit has been um, a church of the past that's declining in number um, that's feeling in, in many places, uh, devoid of imagination, devoid of ideas. That still feels that the message it has to share is important. How how do you think it goes about? Well, from, and you know, and I hear what you say about you not being a kind of practitioner, but sure. from your experience of the places you've travelled around the world, how does the church begin
0: to, to tackle this problem? Well, there's no blueprint. There's no master plan. But I think that are some things that people can do and decisions they can make, which unlock other doors. And one of them, which is perhaps the most contentious, but I think it's the main thing is, if, you get, if I go into church, which is built like one near here for 1200 people, 1200 seats, a gallery and the ground floor. And there are 40 people there who are loyal members And they all sit not two meters apart, but five meters apart. I would never go into that church again. Because that is not a community. That's a gathering of people who are reminding where they sat with a granny when they were a wee boy or girl. And, And we have to stop the building dictating to us what we must do and start saying to the building, we are not 1200 strong but we are the body of Christ. And therefore we have to look as if we belong to each other because if worship is a short window, it's not the only one, but it's one of them. Then when people come in, they have to feel as if they are wanted and they belong and they gather together. So this big church, Glasgow, 1200 people, they have a new minister. And he realizes that this is like the scattered tribes of Israel. And he says, for the good of this congregation and for the good of the gospel, we as the body of Christ should look as if we belong to each other. So I'm going to rope off the gallery and I'm going to rope off the back eight pews and we're all going to sit in the front four pews. Now that was plenty of room for 40 people. Mm -hmm. So two people leave, that's okay. There are other places they can go and sit on their own everybody else stays and over the course of three months there's a transformation people go into church and they talk to each other and he actually encourages this he wants people to feel as if they belong people who would never read in church because you have to fill this whole space with a voice feel well I can I could do that people who have never led prayer before are told it'd be lovely if you lead prayer, but don't go to the front. Just stand at the back. Everybody will hear you if you stand at the back of the congregation. There were only four rows deep. And for me, the the lovely thing was there was a a wee boy who came with his parents. A, wee, a lovely lovely three year old child, who was a Down syndrome child, and like all Down syndrome children, he loved wearing bright colours. His name was Andrew, and he and his parents used to sit over at the side, and nobody sat near them. And I had one person once say, it's a pity for that nice young couple of Down syndrome child. I thought it was a terrible thing to say. Well, of course, when everyone's together, there is this wee boy who dressed in bright colours, sits in, along with his parents. And I go in one Sunday and I sit behind them. They are talking to someone who is new because the congregation after three months was beginning to grow. Everybody sat together. People knew each other. They passed each other in the vicinity and said hello to each other. So they're talking to somebody who's new and Andrew is sitting. And in front of him is a man called Mr. Thompson, who had who was bald, but he had hair at the side and quite a long at the back. And I saw Andrew be, being quite mesmerized with this guy's hair right at his neck. And he's putting his wee hand out and I'm thinking, maybe I should interfere here. And I thought, no, I'm just going to watch this. So he gets a hold of old Thompson's hair. And it he, and Going like oh, gone like back. And I thought, oh, well, he'll turn around and say, control your child, because that's the kind of man he was. So eventually he does turn around. And Andrew says, Andrew, and this boy Thompson says, Oh, uh, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that wee boy enabled the congregation to get to know each other and to lose their scare of Down syndrome children. Now, why did that happen? Because the congregation decided that the building would not dictate what they should do. And most of our buildings are predicated on a society where you face the front because that's where the teacher is. Where the only person who, who speaks for a long while is a minister because he or she is the educated person, studied Greek and Hebrew and all the rest of it, and the lay people don't have anything to say and we're working out of a model which no longer reflects a society that we belong to and no longer reflects the fact that most people are fairly well educated and to be articulate and if only we change the model we might be able to allow the priesthood of all believers to be a visible and audible reality and not just an audience are uh, judging how the people are doing who stand at the front um, with the last question um
1: that says, um, and I guess it's feeds into that whole idea of imagining doing things differently. And that, what about house churches? Where do you think house churches fit into to to a new,
0: bright future? I guess. Well, I think that they have a, a place. You know, it, it, historically within the church, there's there's been, a, you know, individual private prayer. There's been group prayer, which after the Reformation was families reading the Bible together, having prayers at a meal, and there's been the Sunday thing. And it was the same with the Jews, you know, private prayer, the synagogue, and the temple. And we now put everything into the Sunday morning, where, where conversation, or or, or the sharing of faith, or the sharing of insight, just it doesn't happen. That the size of the place intimidates people. And I think there's like that that there's a great potential in having models of meeting in house groups which are not models of eternity now, i used to do the statistics i'll look at statistics for uh, the church of scotland's education and parishes and you would see you know there'd be a, a, a bible study and i'd look you know 1974 10 people 1984 10 people never anymore why because a i always met in the manse with a minister with his people around him and his college notes just on his knees so he could remember what Professor William Bartley said about this passage. And, and, and and people just kind of listened, it was just an, it was a seminar with little, little little interaction. And it never was any more than 10, partly because of the venue, but also because it met every week. Now, one of the things which I learned when I worked in Amsterdam was, we, we may not get people to come to a Bible study every week for 30 or 40 weeks a year but we could do a modular thing for six weeks we could focus it either on a biblical issue or on an issue of current concern and we could make it such that the important thing was not that a speech was given and people had to respond to the expert but rather that people came together to share experience and insight and also do that in the context of beginning to explore God's word. Now, there aren't many models of that kind of thing. I mean, Bible studies by and large, you know, say read this and read this and then answer these questions. Uh, and, and you know, you go on for ages and ages, but I I think, and, and I, this is where I had a local church experience because the atypical congregation in the Netherlands was an English-speaking reformed church. And we had a congregation Sunday morning at 200, but for, for for six weeks in lent and in advent we could have 70 people come into the church hall it was a different model it was ad hoc it was focused on particular issues or a particular biblical uh, you know exploration and and it was led not by the definitive word being spoken first and then you respond but by discovering together and that that's a that kind of conversation asking the question to which there is not a right or a wrong answer and getting rid of this whole calvinist thing that faith is about knowing the answer i mean faith is a journey and not an, an, an answer is a destination mm. faith is a journey and and i, I mean i, I love and i'm thinking you know stephen uh, who's monitoring this is impressed and i i have vivid memories or spending a day with Roman Catholics in Preston exploring the miracles and feeling at the end of the day I have dined on a rich feast because people have brought out from them their experience insights which I would never have had from my experience or from my reading. I'm glad you said that I've always thought from a personal point of view that
1: i've always encountered god not in the answer to the question but in the struggle to get in that so yeah. um, that's that's kind of an affirmation um when i guess what you're saying is a lot of those things have come out of people's imaginations about people doing things differently about saying we don't always have to go the way we've done with something different we've asked the question how how can we nurture our imaginations
0: You know, nobody has ever asked me that, que- that question.
1: <laughs> we like to be unique. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, I, d- I don't, I mean, I, d- I suppose I do this uh, a lot. And w- I, and part of it is just this thing about how, and I'll, I'll take it with the Bible, how do we engage with the Bible imaginatively? Which is to say that supposing, uh, well I'll take an example of of the man who was at the pool of Bethesda who was crippled for 35 years or whatever and Jesus heals him now the interesting thing about that story is it's in three parts the lectionary only has the first part the man's at the pool Jesus said you want to get better the man doesn't reply but Jesus heals him and he's as happy as life second part the pharisees meet a man and they say what are you doing with your bed in the head it's a sabbath day you, you can't carry your bed and your head on the sabbath day and this this curious very funny kind of encounter the third part jesus meets him in the temple and he says to them, unless you change your ways something worse will happen to you and then the man goes and tells the pharisees that jesus is the person who healed them because he didn't know jesus name jesus never left his calling card. Most people know the first bit. In a group of Methodist pastors in Blackpool and in a group of Gloucester, was it Gloucester Diocese? It might not be Gloucester Diocese at a conference center. I asked all the ministers or priests to tell the story to each other. So everybody got, everybody got the first bit, nobody got the second bit, nobody got the third bit. I wouldn't allow people to look at Bibles. That's the the kind of, um, that's not using imagination or the memory or experience. That's looking at the work, this is what it says. No, 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 tell each other the story and then hear the story. What bits did you not recognize or what? And why did you forget these bits? Now immediately people are taken into a different space with that question because there is no right answer. Why is it that we didn't remember about the man the pharisees and why and and why did jesus say unless you change your ways now people then have to begin to think outside the box this is not a sermon with three points this is a curious uh uh, uh, questioning of something to which there's no right answer and and when people get used to that to, to 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 why is this here or what does this remind us of? Not what's the answer to this? Then, 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 great things happen. I mean, my colleague who died last year, uh, Graham, he was in charge of a project we had in Glasgow called Holy City. It was a Sunday night event. I Me, mean, he and I had done something with kids. We used to get about five hundred teenagers uh, a night uh, in the nineteen eighties, once a month, and we kind of carried on and did something for adults, which was smaller scale but he had a planning group Uh, there was nobody in it who was uh, uh, theologically trained but they would they would be planning how maybe 120 up to 150 people would meet on a sunday night would explore a theme and would explore scripture and he always had them to start with the bible with something that nobody had an immediate answer for and here's you know a girl who's got limited mental ability and who's had severe depression and here are two people who are top class intellectuals and here's a guy who's a scientist and here's somebody who's a social worker and here's somebody who's a mother of four and they just all when they learn to trust each other and not to judge each other to to to, to, to feed and encourage each other they began to think very imaginatively because he would then say okay if, if we're going to explore this in worship and now we've got a grip on it. How are we going to allow other people to explore this when there's 120 together?
1: So all the time,
0: it's a, it's, a, it's a question you ask. I mean I wonder, we, we, you know the church for a long time has
1: relied heavily on clergy and I wonder if you think that's a weakness and do we draw enough from a kind of wider pool of creative imagination that's available from the whole people
0: no, I don't, I don't think we do. I mean, I think it's important that we know who the leader is. And I think it's important that, well, I think that the role of minister has changed. I think that that we we should see ourselves more as enablers than dictators. And and of course, the thing is that when you move from being the person in charge, to being the enabler of other people, you lose power. Now, we don't, we, 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 we avoid talking about power in the church because we're all, everyone's equal and we are we are reformed christians you know we've got psh, say, no no there is power that you know the the lead soprano in the choir who's got an awful voice has great power because she just makes a terrible noise on a sunday morning and she knows that you know the man who thinks that he is the biggest donor if he says, as I heard once in a, in a session meeting, if if the church goes along this way, I'm going to withhold my covenant to get no more money from me. no, he's got power. And when you move to engaging with other people, then you as a minister lose power. When I began to work with my colleagues, I've always had three lay colleagues. I remember distinctly when, one day when I had, you know, I had told them that, that the Holy Spirit is actually female because the female, the noun for the Holy Spirit in Jesus' language, is ruach, which is a female noun. Well, in no time at all, these folk are telling other people, and I remember thinking, "Oh, wait a minute! I've been keeping this to myself since I was in theological college. I'd, you know, I'd spent three years getting a okay. honors degree. I don't want to get." It. And I realised that I was dealing with my own sense of power, and then when it goes. You have to deal, not so much with a vacuum, but a new reality. And I realized also that having get rid of some of the arrogance, which was there, it made other people feel that they could begin to initiate and, and to offer. So so I, I think that, you know, if I take an example, uh, Graham, my colleague, was very very keen that, I mean, we made a lot of very interesting things in worship. And one of the things he was keen on was that we would, do an evening first of all in Iona abbey when it wasn't a service it was a celebration of the song of songs now that's a book which you know people just don't touch very often maybe read three verses at a wedding but not too much more many waters cannot quench love that's you know that's sensible but having a beloved with breast like clusters of grapes or a beloved with thighs of alabaster that's not quite you know (laughs) <laughs> quite the thing one talks about so he says no we have to turn this place into an area in which people explore the song of songs so he and joe who's our other colleague who's a lay person uh, began to think about it and 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 graham's you know he's he's a great ideas man joe said well it's a play so maybe we have to have it read as if it were a, a play with with four voices we can do that and Graham said yeah okay and if people haven't read it let's have let's have a uh, bibles all over the church where people can walk around they can pick it up they can read the song of songs they want to read it somebody else said why don't we have a corner where people sing love songs it could be Beatles love songs or it can be Abba love songs or it can be my love is like a red red rose a corner where people can do that and then Graham says you know this book was in the middle ages the most pop popular book in monasteries after john's gospel and the, and the and the psalms and celibate monks monks who forgo fleshly delight with their hand would write out the text so that people who were going to engage in physical intimacy would know that God had ordained it so let's have a corner where people are given one verse of the song of songs and they're asked to remember people who were celibate who thought this was so important that they wrote this with their hand on manuscript for future generations and get them to write one verse with a quill pen, long hand, and take time over it. And then he said, and I think we should have a bed. And uh, I said, no, no, you know, this is good. I, don't, I don't want a bed. No, no. Oh, no, we have a bed. Bed's necessary right in front of the communion table with Red silk on top of it, and we'll have two candle stands at either side, and folk can light a candle for someone with whom they have shared intimacy, which has nourished a life, and thank God for that. Well, eh, you know, I'm kind of thinking, what are folk going to say? You know, what this gets out, you know, the rest of it. The place, you know, is a, a summer night. There'll be 150 folk in the abbey. There were queues of people, crying, weeping before they lit the candle and one woman said i don't like candles i'm a pentecostal but i had never thanked god for the 40 years of marriage which i enjoyed with my husband and for the two lovely girls who have who who are our daughters i've never thanked god for that intimacy and i'll 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 let two candles tonight one for us my husband and i and one for my parents who conceived me no, yeah. no, so so th- this is just looking at the raw material and saying, how can we explore this? How can we explore it? And that's and,
1: I mean that's a enlightening and the whole imagination set free and and a great example. Um let's see some more stories, and I've got some we've got a whole host of questions come in. So um I the, the, Great question. I want to ask, um, well, they're all great questions, but one I want to get to but will take us down a different trap in a moment. So, first of all, just kind of thinking upon this idea of um, carrying on telling biblical stories. Uh, one of the questions we've been asked is is the technique of retelling biblical stories as one of the characters, especially a minor character, revealing? Say that again, sorry, I didn't hear it. Sorry, is the technique of retelling biblical stories as one of the characters? So, telling the biblical story as if you're one of the characters, especially if that character is one of the minor characters, is that a revealing technique? Y-
0: yes, but, but but it's, I feel limited, because one person, you know, that's a one-person thing, it's a one-person's take, and at times I think that that's an, uh, that's an important thing. Uh, for me, the more interesting thing is getting two or three people you know, if if I were if I were looking at, say, the the healing of Jairus's daughter, I might say to a group of people, "So imagine you were one. Suppose you were the wee girl. And after it was all over, you could ask your your dad, Jairus. You could ask Jesus. You could ask the mourners who were saying you were dead a question. What would you ask? Now then, you get a whole host of questions. I mean, I did this once and there were teenage girls in the group and one of them said, well, I would want to, when I I come back around, if I was Janice's daughter, I'd want to ask, who are these four funny men in my bedroom? Only a teenage girl would realize that there were four funny men who she'd never seen in her bedroom. I thought it was a great question, you know? And from that, one might be better able to construct the testimony of the girl not from your own perspective you know be what i think she would do but from discussing that with a number of people i think that i mean that for me is the more is the more creative thing so
1: thinking again about creativity and mission one of the questions we've been asked is this how does the imagination for mission get affected when there is a gathered congregation who don't live together or in the neighborhood of the church?
0: Well, if, uh, if the church is the body of Christ, uh, we have to beat. <laughs> you know, there are so many virtual you know, experiences online. And um, I fear sometimes that we become a virtual community rather than a real community. And I therefore think that that, that sometimes, well, let me, let me t- take t- two things. The one thing is that, that sometimes uh, what well, the founder of the Iona Community called the demanding common task uh, sometimes brings people together in a kind of un- unusual way. If I think of a church, a gathered congregation in Detroit, on the you know Detroit uh, in oh I know Detroit's in Michigan, and I'm thinking of uh, Texas. What's that big town? Not Houston. Not, you know, not Austin. No, the bigger, the bigger one. It said, uh, "I'll come to me." I forget the name, but anyway, it's, it's one at the top. Somebody's bound to be shouting it. Uh, this is a huge city, forty miles across or, or, or more, and this church in the periphery, and it's gonna kind of gather, You know, the, the founding congregation have scattered, and there's, you know, a building that could seat five hundred, and there's maybe about seventy come, and they go away. And they're, and they're asking what they're going to do with this plant, because the church is a plant. It's got several big halls and some interesting spaces, so they begin to to ponder that and and they decide that what they're going to do together, they're going to work on a project which once they've established it they can they can you know they don't need to meet so often, but this project is going to get them together. And it is to to look at the local neighborhood and say, how can we with this property best serve the community? So one of them who lives there begins to talk to the pastor and said look, there are a whole lot of people here who work from home. This is before COVID. I'm thinking six years ago. Uh, they, they And, and they and they miss out on human company. And um, we've got a huge hall. Why don't we install uh, Wi-Fi, you know, we could have booths or desks where people could sit and could do their work and then we could have a coffee break mid-morning, mid-afternoon when people could congregate elsewhere. Well, it was, you know, it was, to some people it seemed a draft idea, but within six months the, all the seats were taken and people would come in and they'd sit very quietly, they'd do their work, they'd meet for coffee, they'd go back, they'd do more work, they'd go for lunch. And this became a, a something which was uh, which was serviced by people in the congregation who would give up their time just to be present to Hampton. And then they discovered that there was a group of, I think it was Syrian, it might be another nationality, refugees. They, the men happened to be very good at mending bicycles, so they opened a bike shed where these men would repair bikes in the community. They couldn't earn money, but a donation could be given to the church to enable its ministry to advance. And so there's the befriending of people of the congregation with these immigrants who they knew were there, but they've never seen face to face. And the female uh, Syrians, they begin, the women begin to do some, I don't know, some with textiles that they did. And so this church becomes a hive of activity, because people have collectively thought, how can we best serve the community, and how can we enable that to happen? It doesn't mean that everyone comes together at the same time, but increasingly more people become involved in it. Now, let me take another example entirely, and it's during this time of of lockdown. I have a friend, I'm going to call him Ian, that's not his name, uh, who is who looks after about twelve small churches. He's got uh, an associate uh, who who help who helps him out, and of course they can't meet for public worship, so they can do stuff online and and he who comes from a conservative evangelical background used to you know 40 minutes expository and three verses from job chapter five uh, discovers that that this doesn't work and that and that standing in the middle of the chancel speaking to a camera with empty pews everywhere it doesn't work people are people are sitting with their coffee in their hand or their pajamas on on a sunday morning at half past nine or half past ten so he doesn't want to do that and he discovers that one of the things that people can do is that he, he might still give the message, but he'll give it in four or five different stages, different places. He will use the musicians from the different churches to provide, you know, backing music. They'll sing hymns, words will got on the screen, but different musicians who are introduced to these 12 small congregations as weeks go by. And he'll ask people as he has to do, to read. Some people would never read in church, but they can sit in their garden and they can read the gospel and feel quite comfortable. Some people have never prayed but if they don't have to pray standing at the lectern where the minister normally stands to pray but can do it from the comfort of their own house and with a script in front of them and if the camera is not in their face but it's going to look at a candle or a, a, a river flowing they, they can do it. Now, I, I go there every Sunday this is my, I'm a regular attender at this this online church and I am astounded at the at the way in which the congregations first of all have identified potential which would never be brought forward if they just did the Sunday morning thing in different places and and the associate minister wrote to me this week because I'd mentioned how I love listening to lay people praying I mean it's just. You know who's who's a high Anglican and you know who's a low Presbyterian, but it's just great their own vocabulary, and and he he said that one of the great things is that everybody in in this vicinity, everybody who watches this, have begun to see the faith in other people, and have become closer to them than they ever would if all they saw was the back of their neck on a Sunday morning, and it's just opened opened doors of possibility. It's great, disciples as
1: well. And yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've had the answer Dallas, perhaps, which is uh, Dallas, Texas. Texas. That's
0: it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know.
1: Um, one of the other questions we've been asked is we can be suspicious of imagination. It can be hard enough to persuade people with facts. How do we persuade and get people on board with our imagination?
0: Well, one way is just to give people a good experience of what's different in a safe place. The example I gave before uh, about the woman who came to this group uh, with nobody else that she knew doing this worship course and, and lit a candle for the first time—that was a safe place. She wasn't being judged, and and it was also optional. But it was a vision of possibility. And I remember, you know, I'm thinking in, in the in, in the building. There's a a church in. I think it's Kirkcaldy, which was one of the first churches in Scotland to to remodel its sanctuary. It It was a big building and they decided to floor over the gallery and upstairs would be the worship space, which was great because people saw the stained glass windows at close hand for the first time since the church was built, unless you sat upstairs and downstairs the suite of halls. And the congregation went with that and other churches who were thinking of how to remodel their building or use their building more creatively would come in cars on a Sunday morning just to see what it was like and that enabled those who were suspicious of a possible change in the physical fabric of their building both to see that it was possible and also to speak to people who had gone through that transition and asked, did you, lose, did you lose any members, or what helped people to, to adapt to this? What can you do now you could never do before? And and then be, began to to uh, yeah began to see that there was a there was possibility. So that so that, that that said, if we if we get an image an experience of that which we have never thought of or been part of before, and and that happens in a safe environment where nobody's being judged or compromised. And that sometimes helps us to move in our own place. the
1: the last the last sort of thirteen to fourteen months has changed, as I said at the beginning, not just the landscape, the country, but you know, it's changed the landscape for the church. What would your hopes be about what we could do? And you know, you've started to talk already a little bit about your online church. Yeah. Um, what would your hopes be that we could do differently, creatively, imaginatively, as we kind of move into the future?
0: Well, the first thing will sound quite negative, uh, but it's not. I th- I believe, and and colleagues of mine say this as well, that that we need to celebrate some things and we need to bemoan some things. And we're not very good at lamenting, we're very good at complaining, but lament is a biblical thing. It was Psalms or Psalms of Lament, Book of Lamentations is the same. And I think that, that as uh, for each other and also as a community of people around the church, we might try to make a time and place where we can lament, where we can consider the past, remember what people have gone through, uh, name those who have been lost, and in the middle of this, feel for the grace of God, which holds us, which doesn't prevent bad things from happening to good people, but which holds us. And just to say this, I remember perhaps one of the most exciting things that I did years ago, and there would only be maybe eight people who came to this. I think it was Scottish Church's house had organised this workshop uh, on grieving. And about eight people came, three of them were URC ministers from England. And I just let people uh, talk about if you were if you were to do what is more popular in America if you were to have a blue Sunday as a time when all the people in the congregation who lost Sunday, or all the people in the in the in the neighbourhood for whom the church or its minister had taken charge of the you know funeral rites and you weren't to have a morning service or that kind of shape what would you do? And I, I just loved, you know, these these folk had never been asked to think. in these terms, because, you know, somebody said, well, first of all, we would have a fiddle playing inside. Because that's a different sound from the organ. And we want people to feel this wasn't like a church service. And we'd get people at the door to greet those who came, who, who quite like saying hello to people. We don't want any of these, kind of, you know, straight jackets. These folk have got corsets in their brains and their mouth who can't welcome you a smile. And we would have quite a lot of silence and we'd have some really nice music and we might have some words that come from the Bible and also maybe some, some poems. And, and we should have some kind of, you know, we might get names read out or we might do something else just to, just to remember to physically remember petals or stones or, you know, and, and then afterwards, we would get into the hall and there would be really nice food. Not, you know, biscuits that have been in a tin for three weeks and they'd bend them when you lift them. And not stale coffee. We'd have wine and we'd have fruit juice and we'd have lovely things to eat. And, and we would make this like a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. Now, you know, we never wrote a script for it because of just people beginning to think but you felt you know the church at its pastoral best should be able to allow people to lament and be grateful and to move on and to do that not by aping what happens on a sunday morning but by something entirely different and we can invite people uh, to that so i think you know that's the kind of neg- like you know what might be dealing with the negative thing uh, from one interest, uh I would hope, and this is despite what you said at the beginning, I would hope that when, when we are able to meet again, we celebrate that we have a voice and that we can sing together. And we make an issue of that. We don't go back to singing, you know, four hymns because that's what you do. We make an issue of singing because our voices have been silenced and God deserves to hell to hear something more. Now that's to do that's to do with with worship. Um I'm reticent to speak about particulars because every church is different every congregation is different but it would be good if if the pastor the minister priest were maybe to invite i'm thinking of a guy who did this in glasgow to invite seven or eight people entirely different across the ages not people who are all elders or deacons or managers, to meet with them and to dream on behalf of the church and see what comes up. That's the thing that I ask when I'm, I sometimes teach a course in America for a doctor of ministry and I ask people to do that. And I remember this guy who was a Lutheran pastor, he was these his last two years. he That scared him completely. He'd always run the show. And I said, Well, you're going to get marked in this as a project you have to do. So pick a theme and get seven people who owe you no favours, who might disagree with each other, and and, and work with them at uh, what might change the face of the church. And this guy said, I decided on ecology because I've never been interested in it. And I'd also said, You know, when you find where the theme's going to be, then find some scripture. He said, I'm through the Bible, I'm thinking. I never knew all this stuff in jeremiah and the prophets about the earth and you know it's not all things bright and beautiful so, so i got these seven people we sat around the table i said look at here's some of the things that the bible says about god's earth what do you think what does it lead us to and he said we took two weeks to just kind of mull through it and try to try to just where did we sit with us what was this saying to us and then we decided how can we how can we interest the congregation so he says we changed our energy policy changed all the bulbs we changed our heating policy we decided that the car park which lies empty six days a week would have a farmer's market in it twice a week we decided that the grounds which we have which are just grass would be turned into a garden space for people who are unemployed to grow their own vegetables we decided that we would pray for creation every sunday and he said there's just a buzz about this place which was never there before. Now I'm not saying it would last forever, but the fact that he entrusted to the dreaming of the new reality seven people who were not his pals, who are not office bearers, and, and trusted them and their imagination, they came up with what helped to transform that congregation. Let's uh, end on, on this question.
1: Um I was only talking to to several people yesterday, saying that my reflections on the last 13 months was that what had served us well over the last 13 months were not our buildings, but our relationships with people. And the last question we've been asked is: much of the discussion has been focused on worship and what happens in the building. Can you comment on mission as building the kingdom of God in the community outside the building?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if you do that, if you're serious about that, you have to make connections with the people who you wish to evangelize, which are not threatening. And you have to enter into conversation with them, which is not judgmental. And you have to have things that happen in the church, which for them might be important. In the Uniting Church in Australia, this is an unusual example. There's a great saint of God called Dorothy McCrea McMahon, who I who I know and correspond with occasionally. And she's in a wee church, but doesn't have a, a lot of members, but in a very poor area. And they were thinking, how can we serve the community? How can we build relationships? And one of the things they identified as being a pestilence in that area was sexual abuse of children. Many folk had suffered from it, or knew people who. Had there were people who were in prison because of it. And nobody ever did any more than read about it in newspapers and tat tat. And the church decided that they would bring people together who were the victims of this or who empathize with victims or who concerned about it. And they would meet in a space where stories might be told and experiences might be relayed and where people might listen and where there would be silence and where there would be an offering to God who some would not believe in of, of the untold pain of people who've never been able to speak about what is unspeakable in their life. And that for that small congregation was a thing which began to wed them to their community. Now, I'm not saying this should happening elsewhere. it was peculiar to that area. but but I think if we're serious about about evangelism and mission, we have to find where people are and where there's a common denominator from which we can learn as also, and also to which we can give something. But if we go anticipating that we have all the goods, we're denying that God, who's not just a God of Christians, is also in those who don't know God by name, because they're all made in God's image and God has gifted them. And it might be that we are able to affirm in them their God-likeness, which make them more open to the offer of the gospel.
1: John, thank you. Thank you for spreading our imaginations tonight, encouraging us to think creatively. Thank you for your time, and it's been a pleasure to talk with you this evening. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Good night.